Brothers and sisters, I would ask that you turn with me in your Bibles in this morning to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 9 and verses 42 to 50. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. Brothers and sisters, and if you would hear with me the reading of God's Word. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, in preparation for our meeting this morning, I was was reading an article about the, the changing stance in the Protestant church on this doctrine of hell. And I came across an article on the, the, the Gospel Coalition. And as I'm reading this article, they, they quote uh, Pendulette. And if you, if you don't know who Pendulette is, he's from that famous group Penn and Teller. Right? They were, I think, comedic, uh, like magic trick guys. But they were, they were fairly famous. Right? But, but Pendulette is an atheist. And yet he says something that I find really profound here, especially for an atheist to say about Christians. And he says this, How much do you as a Christian have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and yet not tell them that? He goes on to say, if you believe in heaven and hell and people could be going to hell and you think that it's not worth telling them this because it's socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? And he's right, isn't he? Right? Too often, the Christian church avoids telling people about hell because it's unpopular, isn't it? Especially amongst the millennials or the, and the unchurched, those people that churches are trying to, to draw into membership. Right? How often throughout the past 10, 20 years has the Protestant church gone away from teaching on hell because they don't want to scare people off. Right? They don't want to be those those fire and brimstone preachers like their grandfather's preacher. Right? They don't want to make people feel uncomfortable in service. They want to be well received by people. And they know that people would prefer to hear about love and grace every week. But how foolish, brothers and sisters, it is right, to withhold this doctrine, this massively important doctrine. And it is because... The church fails to adequately teach on this doctrine. That this doctrine of hell has fallen into obscurity 
in many Christian circles, hasn't it? Right? The doctrine of hell is almost like a, an, append, like an appendage to Christianity. That's how we treat it. We can just take it off and toss it aside because it's no longer useful to us. But Pendulette is absolutely right. Right? Churches think that in not speaking about hell, they're doing something good. It's going to draw people in. It's going to make people stay in church. But that's not loving to do to someone. In fact, what you do by withholding them, this important doctrine is you demonstrate that you hate them and that you don't have great concern for them or their eternal life. Think of it like this. If, if you were to walk inside some business and a gunman were to come in and he were to take hostages and begin shooting people, but you managed to escape and you see someone who's about to walk inside the building, what would you do? You would immediately say, stop! Don't go in there! If you go in there, you're going to die! That's the loving thing to do, to, to caution and to warn, especially if you know that someone could die because of it. It is, it is the callous thing and the cold thing to do. To walk out of there be, being thankful that your life is spared and to say nothing to that person as they walk through those doors knowing they could be killed. And isn't this how the church in many respects has become? They have become cold and callous to lost souls. Instead of loving them by teaching them these things, these difficult doctrines, instead they hate them by coddling them and tickling their ears. Right? We so often are, are, are quick to speak up out of concern to help someone so that they will not lose their earthly life because we're concerned about their body. So that should tell us how much more our level of concern ought to be for those who we know who are going to hell. Where in hell they're going to lose both body and soul for all of eternity. Our response ought to be shouting on the rooftops to all who have ears to hear. It ought to be preaching it in our churches. It ought to be saying it at home to our friends and to our family. People all the time. They like to pick and choose what it is they want to believe and not believe in the Bible, right? People throw out creation. People throw out Jesus' miracles. But what usually is true is anyone who at least professes to be a Christian, they say, well, we believe in the words of Jesus. Right? They, those red-letter Christians, right? They believe in the words of Jesus. You know, they, they hold them more significant perhaps to the words of, of Peter or Paul. But if that's how people see it, then brothers and sisters, there's no greater argument to be made to believe in hell because no one speaks of hell in the Bible more than Christ. Right? All people who profess faith believe in heaven, right? Yet, for some reason, hell is, is becoming more and more unpopular. And, that, and yet, Christ Jesus Himself speaks of hell more often than He speaks to us of heaven. Hell, brothers and sisters, is real. This is why He speaks of it more than heaven. It needs to be feared. It needs to be taken seriously. We need to be making every effort in our lives to avoid it. Right? And so in our text today, this morning, Jesus, as He continues to disciple the apostles, right, He is teaching them right, how they are to avoid causing others to sin as well as 
avoid sinning themselves and falling into this severe judgment that awaits the one who does not break with sin. And so we're going to look at this today in our text under three points this morning. And the three points are this. Point one will be purging sin. Purging sin. Point two will be the the pains of hell. The pains of hell. And point three is purified by fire. So purging sin, pains of hell, purified by fire. So point one then, purging sin. Jesus begins teaching the apostles in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it's better that he has a a millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. You see in this example here, Jesus is highlighting for the apostles the grievousness of sinning against another believer and obstructing them or hindering them from Christ. He says it's better for you to have this great big millstone tied around your neck. A millstone was a, was a great big giant stone that was used to, to crush grain in this time, which usually an animal had to, had to pull around in a circle to crush the grain. And Jesus is saying it's, it's better for you to have that tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea than to be a stumbling block before these little ones or these humble, lowly, weak believers. Jesus says it's it's better for you to die and die in this terrible manner than to cause another to sin. Right here, Jesus is using this extreme example to make a very forceful point. And that is, brothers and sisters, we are not to take sin lightly. And we are to be very careful to avoid being the cause of why another believer sins. Yet today, how many believers pay little to no attention to Jesus' warning? When I was younger, getting my, my undergraduate degree, I remember I took an Old Testament course. This was probably one of the first times I, I heard from a professor teaching an Old Testament introduction course that the opening chapters of Genesis are myth and they're not to be taken literally. Now, thankfully... Before I went into school, I had a a decent foundation so that my faith was not completely obliterated. But think about all of the students who go off to seminary or go off to to, to university and who are taught these things. Think about how it destroys their faith and causes them to walk away from Christ. This is to whom Jesus speaks. This ought to be a warning for us, especially those people in positions of leadership and authority. We have to heed these warnings. right? Ministers to their congregations, teachers to students, parents to children, husbands to wives. You may be presenting stumbling blocks before people and not even be aware of it by things that you say and what you teach them. And yet, not only is Jesus warning us about causing another believer to stumble and directing them away from Christ by by word and by what you teach, but He's also telling us that we are not to direct another believer away from Christ, causing them to stumble by our deeds as well. Liberty for the Christian is a great thing, isn't it? It's great to have liberty in Christ, but how many people who profess faith in Christ abuse liberty and pervert liberty for their own gain? Think about how that affects the person who sees this, who witnesses this. 
Right? How many children out there who have grown up professing Christ in Christian churches depart the faith once they get old enough and leave? And many times, why is that? It's because they've seen a parent or parents. They've seen their minister. They've seen someone who professed Christianity that they looked up to live a hypocritical lifestyle. Right? These people said one thing but did something completely opposite. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must be careful not to be a stumbling block in the path of a believer, either in word or in deed, because as Jesus says, it will not go unpunished. Right? He takes this extremely seriously to cause one of His own to stumble. And so this is a warning to us that we ought to fear and shun every form of sin in our life. Right? And be quick to, to flee it. Resolve to, to walk and talk only in a holy manner before others. Now in verses 43-47, to 47, Jesus continues to go on to, to tell them how they are to resist sin and resist sin for the sake of others, but also to resist sin for the sake of themselves. And so Jesus' overall message in verses 43-47 to 47 can really be broken down into this. Right? His overall message is this. It is kill sin or sin will kill you. Right? Jesus is saying you must purge sin or sin will destroy you. Right? He says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled with life crippled than to have two hands and go into hell. In verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life lame than with two feet in hell. In verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and go into hell. Now obviously here, Jesus isn't speaking literally. He doesn't want us to go home and hack off hand, foot, or to tear out eye. Right? But He's speaking figuratively. But we have to ask, why does Jesus use hand, foot, and eye to convey the message that He's trying to convey this morning? And that is this, that they are extremely important to us, are they not? Right? We, we love our hands, our feet, and our eyes. We value them above anything else and we would hate to lose them, wouldn't we? Right? We wouldn't trade our eyesight for anything in the world. And so this is Jesus' message. This is His point. Whatever you find most precious in this life that keeps you from Christ and from everlasting life, you are to cut it. You are to kill it. You are to forsake it. You are to starve it. You are to crucify it so that you might escape an eternity in hell. This is Jesus' point. Jesus knows though how, how hard it is for the believer. He understands that we are, we are prone to sin and, and putting off sin for the believer is hard and it's painful, isn't it? This is another reason why Jesus uses the hand, the eye, and the foot as an analogy here. Right? Think of someone who has an infection. Right, who needs uh, their foot or needs their leg amputated. Right, think about how hard and painful a decision that is and how hard and painful a surgery that is to have. And yet what? We, we value our life much more and so we, we do it. Right, We're, we're willing to, to risk limb for life. We're willing to give up our hand or our foot in order to continue to live. 
And so Jesus is saying, we must be willing to lose all that is precious to us, that is corrupting us, that is infecting us, that is killing us, if we hope to have everlasting life with Him. Although that person may have had their their leg or their foot amputated, they surely would tell you that at the end of it, it was worth it in order to continue to live. And Jesus is saying, it's better for you to to give up everything that you love in this world to have me in everlasting life. The loss of those things for eternal life is, is far greater. And so that should be a reminder for all of us, brothers and sisters, how important it is for us to separate from sin. Right, to separate from sin, to separate and even break fellowship with those who would draw you into sin. And this is especially important for the, for our younger people here, the, the ones who are moving out, who have moved out, who may be moving out in the coming years. Right, you may have friends that you grew up with. You may have classmates that you grew up with that you know. You may have family members you grew up with that you, that you love and you hold dearly to. But if they are the type of person who will draw you into sin, if they are the type of person who will be a a stumbling block before you in your Christian walk, then you must separate yourselves and break fellowship with them. right? Because you want to provide yourself no occasion to sin. Because you see how detrimental sin is to to our lives. This world does not like to deny themselves a thing, do they? Right? They indulge in every form of sin. Right? Lust, drunkenness, uh, covetousness, idolatry. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, sin is contagious. And once you start to indulge in those sins with these people, it's like a snowball effect. And you're going to continue to sin and sin and sin and fall deeper into sin. This is why Jesus says, if you are a true disciple, right, if you want to come after Me, you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself these things and even deny yourself these people who would cause you or dissuade you from obeying My commands. We must deny ourselves even close relationships with those whom we love if it means obedience to Christ. Because what does Jesus say will happen to those who do not purge sin? but rather indulge themselves in it. What does He say about those who hold on to their their precious sins? What does He say about those who are unwilling to give up sin for eternal life? Jesus says, then you can have your two eyes. You can have your two hands. You can have your two feet. But you will be taking them with you to hell where the unquenchable fire is where we read in verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And this takes us to point number two this morning then, which is the pains of hell. Here, brothers and sisters, we hear from Jesus' very own mouth that hell is real. He says hell is so terrible, He's already told us that we ought to become disfigured in order to avoid it. Today, people say all the time, don't they? I'm going through hell right now. I'm going through hell. I lost my job. You know, I lost my home. I lost a spouse. Maybe it's health problem after health problem after health problem. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. 
No matter what problems you go through, you can combine all the problems of the world together as one. And it will not compare to what you will suffer and deal with in hell. Hell is the worst punishment that anyone can face. One that we cannot even fully comprehend. And unlike the troubles here on earth that we deal with, those things that we we call hell, those things are but temporal. When the unbeliever, when the wicked dies and they, they go to hell, that is eternal. The duration lasts forever. Even for the unbeliever now, no matter what troubles they go through, at least in part, they experience the grace and the love of God here on earth. But when the wicked go to hell, no longer will they experience the love, the mercy, and the grace of God. All they will experience for all of eternity is the never-ending wrath of God. That is why hell is so terrible. That's what's so scary and frightening about hell. It's not that God will not be present. Because He will. He's omnipresent. But those wicked in hell will only ever experience God again in wrath. Now what's described to us in verse 48 is drawn out of the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. This final verse describes the the future state of both the new Jerusalem as well as hell. And starting in verse 22, Isaiah says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, All flesh shall come to worship before Me, declares the Lord. And here it goes. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies who have rebelled against Me. For the worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Now, brothers and sisters, there was a time in in Israel's history in which they participated in, in this pagan worship of offering up their own sons and daughters to a a, a, a false deity named Molech. And in Second Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3, uh, Ahaz, the king of Judah, we're told, actually sacrificed his own children right, in the, in the valley of the son of Hammam or Gehenna. Right? He, he offered up his own children as a burning sacrifice to Molech. This practice was eventually stopped during King Josiah's reign as we read in Second Kings chapter 23, verse 10. Josiah declared that no one again will sacrifice son and daughter to Molech. But this place of sacrifice then afterwards soon became kind of a a dumping ground. It became the the city's uh, garbage spot where all the city's garbage would be dumped. As well as the flesh of rotting carcasses of dead animals. Where the, the worms would be crawling on them and eating them. And they would set this garbage on fire in order to destroy it so that it would not overflow. And this place and its images then became associated for the Jewish people with divine judgment. Right? Gehenna became a, a Jewish metaphor for the final punishment that awaits the wicked. And so Jesus tells the apostles, right, it's, it's better to lose your limb than to go into Gehenna 
or go into hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Right? He's using this picture of what they would understand as being the most terrible thing in order to detract them, in order, in order to cause them to, to, to purge away their sin. And so what does Jesus say about hell? What He's saying about it is that it's a place of torment. It's a place of misery. It's a place of suffering that will never end. Not for a moment will it give up at all. This is why He says the, the worm doesn't die. The, the fire's not quenched. It's eternal. Never ending. Now there isn't any reason for us to take the worms in the fire in a literal sense. That in, you know, in hell there's going to be worms crawling around and there's going to be this great forest fire in hell. Okay, But we have to understand that there aren't really good words to be able to convey what hell will really be like. And so what Jesus is doing is He's taking the very worst thing that any one of them could think of and He's using that to describe to them what hell will be like. And so hell is a place where the wicked we hear will have no peace, right? Where their consciences, Jesus is saying, are going to be gnawed at. Like the worm who gnawed upon the, the, the dead carcass in Gehenna. Right? Their, their consciences are constantly going to be gnawed at. But they're also physically, they're going to be in discomfort, they're going to be in agony, just like the one who would be, whose flesh would be burnt by fire. But this fire is a, a consuming fire that will never end. This, this discomfort and this agony that they experience in hell will never stop. In hell, the, the guilt of their sins are going to be ever-present before their eyes, and yet they're going to know that there is no way to escape it. There is no more satisfaction to be made for them. There is no more atonement to be had. In hell, it will be too late. In, in hell, the wicked are going to lose everything that once made them happy. And in hell, God will have no pity on the wicked. He will have no pity on them. He will not lighten His rod one bit against them. Right In hell, Jesus will take no pity on them. This is why if you hear the message today, do not harden your, your hearts to Christ's voice. Right? Christ is speaking here and now. He's saying, repent and believe. Because when He returns, it will be too late. And then you are going to say, oh, this is what Pastor was telling me about. This is what my parents were telling me about. But by that time, when Christ returns, opportunity will have passed you by. And all that you will receive is your just recompense for your disobedience, for your lawlessness, and for your rejection of Christ's many warnings to you. Yet, for all the saints, this ought to cause us to to hit our knees, shouldn't it? And thankfulness towards God for His grace and His mercy in Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, this abode, hell, was our abode before then. This is where we were destined to go. And yet, it's because of what God has done for us in Christ by choosing us before the foundation of the world to adopt us as His sons and daughters. Not because of anything that we have done, but simply out of God's goodwill and pleasure and for His glory. And so think about that next time you're going to cause another believer to stumble. Think about the next time you're unwilling to give up a, a precious sin that you love. Remember what you were saved for. We need to be spending more time also meditating upon the, the pains and the torments of hell. 
And that ought to cause you, if you're truly a believer, to flee your sin, to purge your sin. Yeah, what does this also teach us? It teaches us that we ought to be praying for others. Right? As those who understand what hell is. For those who understand the, the pains and the torments that the wicked will endure in hell. It ought to cause us to pray for them. To pray for our loved ones. To pray for those who are unregenerate so that they will not experience that end. Right? Asking God that He might take out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Remove the scales from their eyes. Allow them to see and taste the goodness of God. This also ought to cause us, brothers and sisters, no matter how socially awkward it may feel, to go out and to tell others about hell and their need to escape it and present to them the Gospel. Right? Tell them that this is the punishment of the wicked, but God has made a way of escape. And yet the way of escape only comes through Christ Jesus who's calling out to you, repent, believe, and you will have everlasting life. This then takes us to our third and final point this morning, which then is, is purified by fire. Purified by fire. Look with me please at verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, brothers and sisters, these have been described as the most difficult verses in all of the Gospels to interpret. In preparation for today, for these two verses alone, I probably looked at almost a dozen commentaries and listened to, to three sermons. And almost every single person has a different view of what this means. I mean, MacArthur, Steve Lawson, uh, Matthew Henry, William Hendrickson, Sinclair Ferguson, everyone, every, all the heavyweights you can think of. And they all say, eh, I'm not really sure to magnify for you how difficult these verses are. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, he literally says, I'm not even going to try to interpret these two verses. He says, I don't know, so I'm not even going to try to do it. And he just gives you a couple that other people say. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary, doesn't even address verses 49 and 50. He goes from 42 to 48 and then jumps into chapter 10. That's how difficult these two verses are. So usually I feel pretty confident as I stand before you each Sunday and preach to you. I think I, I understand and I know quite well what the text is saying, but I must confess to you today that I'm a little less sure of myself this morning. Right? But through much prayer and preparation and the guiding of the Spirit, I'm going to certainly give it my best and hope I don't miss the mark on this one. But anytime you, you look at texts like this, there are a couple of key things that you want to do, right? You want to, you want to understand what's being said in, in the greater context of the passage. Um, also, what's, what's good to do is do word studies even. You know, you take those real important words like salt and fire and you, and you, you go look around in the Bible and you, you see what they mean. You look at other instances in which Jesus uses these words as well. You look at 
Also the Old Testament. Is this passage alluding to anything else maybe that we could draw from? And so in doing all those things, this is what I believe is being said. Understanding that from the beginning, Jesus is telling us how we might purge sin by any means necessary. And yet, in Jesus telling us that we must purge sin by any means necessary, every single one of us who sits here today understands how hard that is and how imperfectly we do that, right? And so when Jesus says in verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire, what He is saying is that He is going to help purge out our sin from us by salting us with fire. Right? So in this text, in verse 49, He's describing what He is going to do for us. Right? He's encouraging us. We must forsake sin. We must cut it off. We must cast it out. But what he's telling us is we are not going to do it alone. Right? He is alongside of us, working to purge it out of us. And so in verse 49, that the everyone is in reference to believers. Right? It's in reference to believers. So all believers are going to be salted with fire. This is where then the Old Testament context comes, comes into play as well. In Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, the Israelites are told this, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Right Now, what does salt symbolize? Right? Oftentimes, purification, right? And so, the offerings were seasoned with salt to remove corruption so that they would be pleasing to God. Now, what are we told in, by Paul in Romans 12, verse 1 now? Today, brothers and sisters, right? we are to be living sacrifices, right? And so, likewise then, as we offer ourselves to God, we become those sacrifices seasoned with salt. Right? Our corruption is being removed and we are being purified as sacrifices to God as we go through fire. Right? So God is seizing us with salt and purifying us through fire. Right? And this isn't something that's, that's odd or we can't understand, right? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, we're told, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you to test your faith, right? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Peter says that our faith is being tested by fire, right? So that through it, when Christ returns, it will be shown that we are true. And so, what Jesus is saying is that He's going to salt us by fire. He's going to be working to remove and purge out and refine us through fire. And all those things that He places in our path, right? So that we would escape hell and that He would make us fitted and ready for heaven. And so, what Jesus is really saying here is that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Right After giving those hard sayings about what hell will be like and warning them against going to hell, He is now comforting them by this message. That's what we see in verse 49. And then in, in verse 50, right, He says again, salt is good, but if salt lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Right? God seasons us and through it preserves us from sin and corruption. And in doing so, by seasoning us with this salt through fire, He's making us useful for His kingdom. And so He's telling us to, to embrace those fiery trials. Right? To embrace it and to not reject it. 
And if you think about it, brothers and sisters, shouldn't we embrace those fiery trials? Think about it. Let's say, take for example, let's say you find a lump on your body. Right? And you think it could be cancer. And let's say you have a, a doctor's appointment scheduled for two weeks later. What usually will take place during those two weeks when you're placed in a fiery trial by God? All of a sudden, you draw close to God, don't you? All of a sudden, you're praying every day. You're reading your Bible every day. You don't have time to be uh, exercising yourself in those sins that you once did before coming to learn these, this, this heavy, weighty news. Right? And so, we, are, we must embrace these trials because in these trials, God is purifying us, right? He's preserving us. He's causing us to die to sin and to put on righteousness. You have to understand, we cannot survive in this world without being seasoned with salt by God. And yet, brothers and sisters, and we're being told we have to use the grace He gives us, right? That salt that is in ourselves in order to continue to, to free ourselves from sin and to be at peace with one another, right? Which ought to be the church's goal, right? To have peace within yourselves and to have peace with one another. And so we ought to all look forward to Jesus salting us through fire, because in doing so, He is destroying what is bad in us. He is growing that which is good in us. And thus, in verse 49 and 50, He is ensuring us that we will not be overcome by sin in this world, that we do not have to fear that those whom He has saved will ever enter into the pits of hell. But rather here, by God's grace, He promises us in verses 49 and 50 that He is going to continue to purify us and preserve us until the end. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this day. Father, we confess our sin to You that we are not quick to cut off hand, foot, or pluck out eye. We like to hold on to our precious sin. And yet, Father, we ask that this message today, Your Word today, that You would impress upon our hearts and our minds the the need to flee from sin immediately because all sin will do is work to corrupt us and, Father, only help to send us to eternal hellfire. And so we pray, Father, that by the Spirit's aid You would be purging out all sin within us and that, Father, You would be reassuring us and affirming Your promises to us uh, that those who You have saved You most surely will raise up on the last day. And yet, Father, cause us out of great love and obedience towards You to continue to flee, purge, and cast off all sin for Your glory, honor, and for Your praise. And Father, we come before You and we pray and ask all these things. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.